Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What you hear in this podcast does not implicate any individual or entity in any criminal activity. The views and opinions are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast. Renee Bach wants you to know something. Yes, she admits, 105 children did die at her NGO. But she did the best she could for them, hiring nurses, doctors, bringing medical equipment from the U.S. over to Uganda, even paying for kids to go to private hospitals when things got serious. We can't make a difference to everyone, but we can make a difference to some people. And just because there are so many negative things happening and people dying and, you know, kids getting kidnapped and when it seems like the world is just kind of crashing down, that doesn't mean that you can't make a difference for that one person. 
Renee and her lawyer implored, instead of focusing on those inevitable tragedies, why don't we take a look at the good that they did in Uganda? From 2009 to 2015, 800 other children came in sick and starving and went home happy and healthy. To drive that point home, Renee's mother, Lori, told us about a little girl named Patricia, one of serving his children's smiling success stories. She came in with her body swollen from head to toe and covered in boils. Weeks later, she was back to her regular weight, back to being a messy eater, and back home with her family. I think Patricia's like nine or ten now, and she goes to school, and I mean, they're a family because they sought help and somebody was able to help them. So, I mean, that's just a whole great story right there. And then Lori sent us a video. It was an interview with Patricia's father, James Okello. He speaks in the local language, but the subtitles underneath read, This white has helped us up to the time our daughter got well. Even up to date, we thank them. If you saw the photos of Patricia on Renee's blog, swollen, almost like she was going to burst, you'd think it was nothing short of a miracle. But the video also showed a picture of Patricia now, almost a teenager, and she has a scar running down the side of her face. And James says, We were told that the white lady is being prosecuted for keeping the flesh of my daughter on ice and eating it. Cannibalism. I can't say I had that on my missionary bingo card. In association with iHeartMedia, I'm Rajiv Gola. I'm Halima Gikandi. I'm Malcolm Burnley. And this is The Missionary, Episode 4, The Video. Before we got this video, Patricia wasn't really on our radar. She wasn't part of the court case, and she wasn't one of the 105 children who died at Renee's facility. But when we started looking into it, she didn't seem like much of a success story either. The first people who told me Patricia's story were Renee's former employees, the ones that had written affidavits in the case against her. Jacqueline Atim, one of Renee's former social workers, told me that Renee gave Patricia a blood transfusion when she came to serving his children. Renee did a transfusion without cross-matching the blood. I think she just went and got blood and started a transfusion immediately. And this kid was in critical condition. The blood had burnt. And that girl has a very big scar. The transfusion of uh, this girl from Mayuge called Patricia was not good because one, where she was transfused was not hygienic, the place was not looking good and indeed the girl reacted to the blood, she almost died. She just survived by God's mercy. That's Charles Olwaney, Renee's former program manager. And he told me if I wanted to get to the bottom of Patricia's story, I needed to talk to the woman who was actually there, who'd seen all of it firsthand. An American volunteer named Jackie Kramlick. Jacqueline Kramlitz was always telling her, no, what you are doing is wrong. 
let the medical people do it. If it was not uh, Jacqueline Crumley's, Patricia would have died. Jackie Kramlick was a nursing student at Jamestown College in North Dakota when she met Chris. He was five years older and had just gotten back from Iraq, where he served with the Army. We were in the choir together at college. Yeah. And then, yeah, I knew her older sister from high school, so. So you just kept asking me how my sister was doing until finally you started talking to me about how I They hit it off right away. Chris is lean and athletic, with the same stubbly beard and buzz cut he got in the Army. He seems confident and patient. Jackie's a little shorter and just as cheery. They were both raised Christian and held their faith close. Pretty soon, they got married. And when Jackie graduated and got her nursing degree, she knew she could be useful abroad. That's when a friend in Uganda told him about serving his children and the incredible woman running it, Renee Bach. Without a second thought, Jackie submitted a volunteer application which we pulled from the court files and asked them to read. We feel that the size of serving his children maintains a sense of order while at the same time allows for God to move and speak to the volunteer. We've been so encouraged by the way Renee and other volunteers simply love Jesus and love others. Serving his children is very to the point, very biblical, and we think it is the perfect fit for us. At the bottom of the application is a little note. You don't have to be a licensed teacher to teach or be in the medical field to put on band-aids. You just have to have passion and working knowledge in that area. The organization that Jackie and Chris walked into was very different from the one that Renee started back in 2009. In less than two years, Renee had transformed serving his children into a full-fledged rehabilitation center. She was shipping in medical equipment from the States and buying more materials for in-house treatments. By the time I was there, there was kind of two parts of the house. It was like the general kids who are just kind of generally, you know, ill and they're going through this process of being refed and most of them had IVs in and things like that. And then there were kids who have kind of, it was this little tiny bedroom off the side, um, of her living room and it was painted red and there were two beds in there and that is where kids would be hooked up to oxygen or be on more intensive IV therapy have more close monitoring so the concept is not very different from what we would consider you know ICU in the sense that kids who needed more intensive care went there Renee called this makeshift ICU the Red Room. The walls were painted a deep red and were plastered with pictures of children who'd passed through the facility. One of the first photos I saw of Renee was actually taken in the Red Room. In it, she stands with her head down, arms stretched out. Light filters in behind her, making a halo around her whole body. As soon as I entered in that room is when a lot of guesswork was happening and a lot of actions that she was not trained to do were happening. I was fit to like provide medical care and whatever. These things were over my head. Like this is serious, serious NICU, you level care. The list of medical procedures that Jackie says she saw Renee perform reads like a med school curriculum. Intramuscular injections, femoral artery puncture, blood transfusions, nasogastric tube insertion, 
baby delivery, and the preparation of a dead body. In terms of Ugandans, I don't know how you wouldn't interpret her as a doctor. I think the confusion lies in, did she ever say, hello, my name is Dr. Renee? Absolutely not. No, she never said that in, in my presence. Did she wear a stethoscope around her neck and assess children? And did Ugandans call her Musao, which is a Luganda word for doctor or nurse? Yes, they did. She's giving medicine, she's providing IVs, she's doing blood transfusions, she's assessing children, she's diagnosing, she's prescribing. I don't really know how you can do all those things and then in the same breath claim, I've never represented myself as a medical healthcare provider. What else would that be doing? <laughs> in her affidavit, Jackie claims that when she asked Renee how she was making clinical decisions, Renee said that she used a medical handbook relied on her gut feeling, and that she felt God would tell her what to do for a child. It kind of stems from this belief of, like, God is sovereign. So anything that happens was supposed to happen. So this is really common in the missionary community. So, for example, child would die, and, you know, Renee would have her hysterics, and then people would be like, Renee, God is sovereign. There's nothing you could have done that would have prevented this, because if a child was meant to die, the child's gonna die. And if God wanted to prevent it, he would have prevented it. Despite Jackie's training, she noticed that Renee would call friends in the States, or even ask less qualified volunteers for medical advice. To Chris, it almost felt like everyone was just playing house. But after a child died without explanation, it became almost too real. The point, I guess, for me was when I had to drive the van one night to take this child's body back to the village. Um, and Jackie rode along, and I'm driving, and we get out to the village, and people are waiting for us, like they're wailing, and watching Charles or whoever carry out this body wrapped in a sheet. That just brought back memories of Iraq to me, and... and seeing people get killed there and it was like okay yeah this is i mean to me that this was as real as a war at that point like there were people dying here she knew that the way serving his children operated wasn't right but no matter how bad it got jackie just wouldn't or couldn't speak up i felt like i didn't have a right to tell this person who is viewed as a superhero Christian, viewed as, you know, Mother Teresa incarnate, I felt like I didn't have a right to tell her certain things because I didn't have the same spiritual weight. I didn't have the same social weight as her. And I just didn't know how to contend with that. But after a little girl left serving his children scarred for life, Jackie knew she couldn't keep quiet any longer. That entire case, there was so much about that case and what went down that just was the absolute nail in the coffin of me not being willing to give her the benefit of the doubt anymore as yeah. to what was happening. So then it becomes a whole different issue, right? This isn't just mistakes done out of ignorance. This is mistakes done intentional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That child's name was Patricia.
We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was fall 2011, and Renee hadn't been to church in weeks. The Red Room was overflowing with kids, and she was exhausted. It was supposed to be a day of rest and worship. But just as the service began, her phone rang. It was Mama Fatima, one of her employees at the facility. There were two parents at the door, and their baby was in critical condition. Renee grabbed her bag and hopped in the car. She raced across Jinja to get back to Masese, on the outskirts of town. When Renee got to her facility, a little girl was waiting there for her. She was just nine months old. Her parents had been trying to find help at different clinics for weeks, but nothing was working. Serving his children was their last resort. And it was clear that she was very ill. She was completely swollen from head to toe. And it's hard to know by just looking at a kid. You know, you really have to do some investigation. So we weren't really sure what was going on, but just ran some initial tests. The blood tests came back with bad news. Patricia was positive for malaria and had a severely low hemoglobin count. At the time, serving his children had a doctor that would come in to make rounds a few times a week. The doctor wasn't at the facility that day because it was a Sunday, but was called and he said, yeah, you should probably go ahead and start a blood transfusion. So they started one. Pretty quickly though, Renee noticed something wasn't right. Patricia's face and neck were swelling up. Within a few minutes, her throat was beginning to close. And that's when Renee finally called Jackie. I get a call from Renee on a Sunday, and she's like, could you come down to the house? There's this child there. I think they're having an anaphylactic reaction, but I don't know because Google says that they're supposed to have a rash, and they don't have a rash, so like, could you come see? Blood transfusions have become one of the more contentious and confusing allegations that have been lodged against Renee. So Halima went out to a few hospitals to get a closer look. In her blog, she constantly wrote about this desperate search for blood for the children at her facility. After visiting countless hospitals and health centers, I learned that there was a national blood shortage in Uganda, a crisis. In fact, on one of my visits to the children's hospital in Jinja, I remember sitting outside of the emergency room waiting for a doctor. As I'm waiting, I see a nurse walk by and put the body of an older child in a room in front of me. And then I see the child's mother come out of the room, sobbing. Later, a doctor told me that that family had been driving throughout the whole night, searching for blood for their child. By the time they arrived in Jinja, he was nearly dead. 
Months later, I reached out to a malnutrition doctor to learn more about why blood transfusions might have been used to treat severely malnourished kids at serving his children. And can you introduce yourself? What's your name and where are you working now? Uh, thank you very much. My name is Chijogo Saranj. I'm uh, working at Mbari Regional Fire Hospital as a senior nutritionist. And also, I double as a regional nutritionist. Dr. Siraj told me that blood transfusions were incredibly risky procedures, especially for severely malnourished kids. They were incredibly fragile and often had these other medical complications. So even the slightest imbalances could result in death. That's why only the most qualified experts or specialists should treat them. They needed constant supervision. Uh, if someone is not trained in the nutrition and the management of the student, especially children with complications, they will use or apply procedures that are not suitable for them, that are suitable for other children. And this would uh, cause a lot of death in these children. Mm. Dr. Siraj said that in most cases, a child's hemoglobin count would return to normal after a few days of close care. But blood transfusions were an absolute last resort. The blood itself causes complications. The transfusion would be very, very dangerous. Giving excess would result to death of this child. So that was not recommended. This is a serious procedure. A dangerous, actually, procedure in this child here. Ah, my God. I started showing him photos that Renee had posted online of children receiving blood transfusions at serving his children. Oh, now, this one, okay, this very one here is getting a blood transfusion. <laughs> wow, and this child should, should not be given a blood transfusion, this one. I don't know for what reason, because the child looks so stable. Uh, the child is well hydrated, because I can see, look at the head, eh? all these veins, eh? they show that the child is okay eh? on the head. Uh, the appearance, the eyes are bright. child is very stable. Such a child should not be transfused. Mm. Um, but I'm wondering from your perspective, um, you know, even if somebody is very talented at putting in IVs, should people without this experience, even medical professionals without nutrition expertise, be dealing with these cases? No, 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 no. You see, these are serious medical complications. It should be managed by a pediatrician. Four years before serving his children was opened, there was a study done at Uganda's biggest hospital, Lago, and it looked at more than 200 severely malnourished children who had died there. And the study concluded that blood transfusions and IVs were the main risk factors in their deaths. Over the years, Rene has gone back and forth on whether there were ever blood transfusions done at serving his children. In an interview with the Smith Mountain Eagle in 2014, she said, we do a lot of blood transfusions. But in her response to the lawsuit, Rene denies that serving his children performed blood transfusions. They sent children to medical facilities to have them done elsewhere. When I asked her about it again and whether she was personally involved in starting any transfusions, her answer was puzzling. 
just ask one time, you individually didn't start any blood transfusions, is that right? Even under the, to, under the discretion of a doctor or a nurse, or did you? Serving as children did, right. yes. Um, and I was usually involved in that process, but I didn't like say, okay, this kid needs a blood transfusion and then go and do it. Um, so that's not to say that I wasn't involved in the process, so I'm sure that can be construed as doing it. I started a lot of IVs for kids who got blood transfusions, but I never carried out all of that process on my own discretion. But at the end of the day, it's an argument over the semantics of a risky medical procedure. Patricia was given a blood transfusion at serving his children an unlicensed and unrecognized medical facility without a doctor present. I don't know why she was like very averse to me being involved in those situations. Yeah. You don't want me here. You need to be in the center of this. That's what's very clear to me. It's like not, it's not about saving kids. It's about you being someone who saves kids. That's what this is about. So I walk in on this and I'm like in this really like horrific situation of like not knowing if they're in a state of shock, did they come in wheezing and swollen? I don't know. Jackie knew this was more serious than she could handle. Stop the blood, give Benadryl, um, and then she rushes the child to Kampala. Patricia needed more blood transfusions, but the hospital in Kampala didn't have her type. The doctor asked Renee if she'd be willing to give a blood sample to see if she was compatible. The test came back B positive, exactly what Patricia needed. It was almost too good to be true. Patricia was given a transfusion with Renee's blood, and a few days later, her condition stabilized. She was discharged into Renee's care. But when they got back to Jinja, Jackie noticed something strange. Slowly, this little bump appears on her cheek and is like slowly creeping down to her jugular, like skin is like gaping off. And I'm like going back and forth with the medical team that I had in the States trying to figure out what they thought, what should we do. Renee took photos of Patricia in this condition and posted them on her blog. The skin on Patricia's cheek is black and bloody and there's white pus around the edges. She has plastic tubes running all over her body and looks like she's barely hanging on. Jackie didn't know what the disease was, but she knew she was running out of time to figure it out. Every day, the wound was getting bigger and deeper, making its way down to the blood vessels in Patricia's neck. Fortunately, a group of nurses and doctors from Alabama had just arrived in Jinja to volunteer for a few weeks. And after days of desperation, the visiting doctor recommended a new treatment plan. As the child is like recovering, I'm like sorting through the child's medical file and I see on one of the papers from the hospital, it says necrotizing fasciitis, question mark, written in by a doctor. That's medical speak for flesh eating disease. We were searching for days, like trying to figure out what this was, how do we treat it? In the meantime, this child's face was being eaten off. Okay, I'm like, you saw this. You knew this was here. Like, this child had already been diagnosed before you discharged the child out of the hospital. Why would you discharge them? And her response was, well, yeah, they mentioned something about that, but it just didn't sound like they knew what they were talking about. Jackie didn't buy it. She thought there was no way a hospital would have discharged a patient after a diagnosis like that. 
I'm not going to say that, like, you know, I can't imagine a world ever where someone might say, okay, fine, take her home if you want to. But I'm just saying it seems very bizarre to me that it seemed to be happening to her constantly, that doctors were just saying to her, you could do a better job than we could do. For her part, Renee admits that the discharge documents said that Patricia had flesh-eating disease. But she claims that the doctors in Kampala told her it wasn't a big deal. Um, and the person that I spoke with was like, oh, yeah, like, I, I, it's like not a big deal. I don't know, you know. So the person that wrote her discharge papers, you know, wrote his findings and his summary, whatever. Um, and to be honest, I didn't even really read those. Um, I brought them back and gave them to our nurses to put in her file. I know Jackie says, well, you know, Renee said she didn't know about that or it wasn't a big deal. But then on these papers and well, yeah, because I didn't read the papers. I just listened to what I was, was told. And if that was an oversight by our nurses, then that was an oversight. Um, not to cast any blame on anyone, of course. Slowly, Patricia's swelling went away. The wound on her face began closing up. As Renee wrote in her blog, the most important thing about the days that came is that we saw God move in huge ways. He literally performed a miracle before our eyes. The pictures on Renee's blog show Patricia with a small bandage on her face. Her mother is beaming. Patricia is sitting in her lap, wearing a yellow polka dot diaper. In another picture, she's making a mess out of a bowl of beans and rice. Patricia stayed at serving his children for a few more weeks before going home. But to this day, she has a large scar running down the side of her face where the disease ate away at her. There is no need for that child to have permanent scarring at all. Now, granted, I am surprised that child survived at all, but I'm sure they would have been fine in a hospital, if not clearly better. It did away with any illusions Jackie might have had about Renee, that she was acting selflessly, as a good Samaritan would. A good Samaritan is walking down the street and sees somebody who falls over and is like, oh, what do I do? I'm going to do my best. It's a one-off. It's probably the only time in their entire life they find themselves in that situation. It's not a good Samaritan. She created an ER in her living room and then always happened to find herself in an emergency. It's like, you don't get to place yourself in an ER and then claim, oh, it was an emergency. She wasn't a good Samaritan. She was a fraud. Like, that's the difference. Like... If, if I were to walk into an ER and just start like willy-nilly treating people because the line is long, you bet your butt I'd be like kicked out of there and arrested in two seconds. That is not a good Samaritan law. Today, Renee admits that her memory of the whole Patricia saga is a bit hazy. What you don't understand is that I lived in Uganda for 10 years and Patricia is one of like almost a thousand kids that was like this. And so recounting her exact story and then being held and bound by those details on record for the media is really tough because then it kind of is a he said, she said game. You know, Jackie's like, well, no, Renee said this or Renee did this. And I'm like, honestly, I don't remember that happening. But if Jackie said it did, it's probably true because she likely has a better memory. What happened with Patricia is what happened eight times out of 10 with kids that walked into our front door. And honestly, I know it's been said like, oh, she's scarred for life from Renee or whatever. And, and Jackie's had a lot of really negative things to say about that instance and me in that situation. And I'd 
love to say some really negative things about Jackie in that situation. But in all honesty, Jackie is the one that determined the drug that stopped that flesh-eating bacteria. And so if it weren't for Jackie, she could have died. Renee denies all of Jackie's accusations entirely. She says she never did any of the medical procedures that Jackie claims. She says she trusted her local staff and that she only assisted when asked by professionals. I was always encouraged and led to believe that like, yes, if someone else can't meet this need and you have the know-how, then you should agree. You know, if someone says, can you start this IV and you know how, like, well, why would you not? And she denies wanting to push Jackie away. Instead, she says that Jackie just couldn't handle working at the clinic. Renee says she was too emotional, wouldn't take advice from local nurses, and just wasn't ready for Uganda. Anytime you start a new job, everyone who's been there longer than you is always going to be like, you don't know anything, you're just such a newbie, you know? So definitely a part of me thinks like, oh, come on, Jackie, like, bless your heart. You haven't been there that long, and your world was very sheltered while you were there because you self-admittedly, like, emotionally couldn't handle the, like, tough realities of being in a developing situation like that. So I don't know that it's really fair for you to say, like, what you would or wouldn't have done in this situation. Renee also says that Jackie never actually got a license to practice nursing in Uganda, which means any medical work that Jackie did would have been illegal. But Jackie says that she was told by Renee's mother that a nursing license was unnecessary. Shortly after Patricia went home, Jackie resigned from serving his children. She wrote a letter addressed to the board of directors, made up of a few church leaders from back in Virginia. The letter was polite, but offered a stern warning of what was going on at serving his children. I go on in that letter to like, be like, oh, you're undoubtedly motivated and intelligent and blah, 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 but you're not trained. And the response is like, that's hurtful. I'm like, the fact that you find that hurtful is really troubling. I don't know what you find hurtful about the fact that you're not a trained professional. What you're saying is, it's hurtful to you to be told that you're not who you believe you are, like this fantasy of yourself. Years later, Jackie would even help file a police report against Renee. No one's going to call out a girl who's like dropped her life and moved here and is serving, serving, serving to be like, are you really doing this right? Well, they look like a huge asshole now. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is she breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. 
This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. No white saviors seized on Patricia's story. They shared Renee's blogs and photos. The captions reminded followers, quote, Renee was not a licensed or trained medical professional. Her center was also not a licensed medical facility. Yet, here they are giving a blood transfusion to a critically ill child? There was no doubt that Renee and Lori were losing the online battle. It looked like they were losing the ground game too. No White Saviors had been canvassing Uganda for families who'd suffered injury or death at serving his children, convincing them to join up in the cause. No White Saviors even convinced former volunteers and employees to join the lawsuit and put them in touch with journalists, ourselves included. But Lori believed she had an ace in the hole, a video testimony of Patricia's father. Lori told me about it. This is the child that No White Saviors is saying that Renee just figured this child and Renee did this and, you know, they're using it to crucify her. But the family themselves actually are so thankful and are willing to do whatever they can to support Renee. That's just like one of the kids. The questions appear on a black title screen, and James Akello, Patricia's father, answers them directly to the camera. He's speaking in his local language, and English subtitles are pasted underneath. He speaks quietly and calmly, but his eyes keep darting throughout. James offered a glowing review of the services his daughter had received. He says that Renee paid for all of Patricia's hospital bills, nearly $1,000. He says he's grateful for Renee. In his eyes, the woman who saved his daughter's life. I have never seen the white lady treating my child, but what I saw were local medics who came in to treat my child. But the next question, that's what this video was really about and why we think Lori shared it with us in the first place. It goes like this. Will you briefly explain how you met the people who are asking you to accuse the white lady, Renee Bach, of chopping the meat off of your child? The first time we went to serving his children, we met Joyce, Aunt Jackie, Pastor, who would always preach to console us every time, and the black man, who was the driver. James goes on to say that earlier that year, he was approached by some of Renee's former employees. He says they offered to pay his family to give testimony in the civil suit that No White Saviors had helped bring against Renee and Ginger's high court. That case is still under deliberation. James said they wanted him to say that Renee had cut off the skin of his daughter and eaten it. Cannibalism is a pretty old trope in Africa. In colonial times, missionaries would write stories about the man-eating cannibals they had encountered in the wild. In the 70s, Uganda's old dictator Idi Amin is said to have told a reporter, I don't like human flesh. It's too salty for me. The press, needless to say, ate it up. 
And if you remember hearing about Joseph Kony in 2012, you might remember claims that he made soldiers drink blood or eat human flesh. Even these days, it's not uncommon to see headlines in the Ugandan tabloids about witch doctors in the village making potions out of the body parts of children. If Renee's critics wanted a headline that was sure to generate clicks and retweets, what could be better than white savior eats black babies? But in the video, James completely refutes that. He goes on to say, even for 10 million shillings, I can't take it and I cannot falsely testify, accusing the woman who treated my child. But the experience spooked James, so much that since then, he has kept Patricia in hiding. We are afraid because the other people here caution me that these people can come at any time to kidnap and kill the child in order to change the case. Okay, so as an attempt to clear Renee's name, the video sort of falls short. Because the story James tells is just so full of holes. First off, he makes no mention of the flesh-eating disease that nearly killed his daughter. Then, when asked whether Renee ever performed medicine on Patricia, he says he never saw any white person touch his child, even though Jackie Kramlick and a team of visiting doctors tended to her for weeks. He even admits that he wasn't around at the facility that much. It was his wife who stayed by Patricia's side. So how could he speak confidently about the care? Finally, no white saviors, the former employees, and the lawyers. None of them had ever accused Renee of cannibalism. James was defending her from an allegation that no one had made. The purpose of the video seemed less about Patricia as a success story, and more about smearing the other side for tampering with witnesses. It wasn't the only time this happened. According to Renee, No White Saviors was paying off Charles, the former program manager, at serving his children. And so I honestly feel like he, that NWS had already offered him an extensive amount of money to take him to clients. And he was like, well, if we sit down and you offer me more money, then I'll basically work for you and work for you by not working for them. Did he indicate that by phone or is this just a hunch? That's just a personal hunch, yeah. She also said that both Charles and Jacqueline, the former social worker at Serving His Children, were going around town and swaying ex-employees not to speak up on behalf of Renee, often through extreme tactics. Because all of those guys, I think, said more than once, like, oh, Renee's, I mean, they said things like, Renee said she will kill herself if I testify against her in court. Renee said she'll just commit suicide. So. They're, they're saying all kinds of things like that. Renee said she's going to burn down my house if I testify against her court. And soon enough, Renee's camp wasn't just accusing no white saviors or the former employees of tampering with the case. She was now starting to accuse us of bribery and conspiracy. I'd spend time reporting with and about no white saviors. And Lori would tell you that I was working for them, even called me the NWS journalist. I tried to explain you were embedding as a reporter, trying to see the world through their eyes. Renee even asked me if you were dating Kelsey, which was crazy. It was clear that they were trying to drive a wedge between us. I even heard a rumor in Jinja that I'd been fired from the investigation for bribing sources to give false testimonies. 
To me, this felt like another window into Lori and Renee's worldview. Again and again, they viewed these small, isolated events in their lives as being part of some broader evil or a broader grace. Lori and Renee saw this whole case not as one based on what actually happened at serving his children, but as a campaign engineered by people with personal vendettas against Renee. It was a version of the story where Renee was the real victim. So, yeah, to them, I was just another conspirator. It seemed like every time our team started investigating some part of this story, something would come up to try to throw us off the scent or distract us from our investigation. And each time that happened, the truth of what actually went on at serving his children all of those years ago got muddier and muddier. The video and the cannibalism rumors were a message that bribes, intimidation, and other criminal activities were happening in the backdrop of our investigation. But was any of that real? Or was it an attempt to take the focus off of Renee and put the blame on everyone, anyone, but her? On the next episode of The Missionary, we go beyond the media frenzy and the rumors to try to find the medical facts of what happened. Now, I've got a story that got me just, I even wanted to just throw this at someone, for real. It got me so emotional. And it's all about this uh, fake-ass, you know, white supremacist, she ain't even a doctor. She didn't get children who are fine from the villages, but she was getting children from the villages who are desperate to bring them and have at least they, for them to afford a smile. If they were really dying, those children were dying happily, being attended to. So the minister saw uh, that video running, so she wanted to know uh, the issues to do with that facility. Went there and uh, produced a preliminary report. The Missionary is produced in association with iHeartMedia. It's written and reported by Rajiv Gola, Halima Gikandi, and Malcolm Burnley. It's produced by Michelle Lands and Ryan Murdoch. Mark Lotto is our story editor. Our executive producer is Mangesh Hathikudur. Our fact checker is Austin Thompson. Mixing by Josh Rogerson. And voice acting by Taylor Kaufman. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 